Wana Pate, and welcome to another episode of In the Area Podcast, a podcast where Isaac Schiller interview amazing people I am in the area of. Today, I interview Mike Imperi, the current headmaster of the Vail Mountain School and the past head of the Alexander Dawson School at Rainbow Mountain in Las Vegas. Recording live from Mike's office in Vail, Colorado, In the Area Podcast. What do you think were some of the important experiences in your life that led to where you are now? Well, it's been a fairly long life, so this is going to be a long podcast, Zach. I think the early formative years had to be around scouting. Uh, I, uh, I'm an Eagle Scout, and I'm an Order of the Arrow honoree, which takes a kid into the woods at 11 years old and has to be alone for 24 hours and forage for themselves, among other things, do a day of silence, et cetera, et cetera. And the years in scouting were very, very uh, formative for me and transformative for me. I grew up in Michigan, and we did a lot of winter camping up in the Boundary Waters and canoeing, and that sort of formulated my future travel and desire for uh, roughing it, if if you will. And those experiences took you to the Singapore American School? Yeah, well, to step back a little bit before that, uh, I was married in my early 20s. My wife and I bought a house in Cleveland. It was on a few acres, and we were just going to have our family there and teach. And we were both teachers and uh, live our lives. And through a variety of different life's events, some positive, some negative, we uh, decided to take a year off from our teaching and to travel around the world in our late 20s. And uh, that, that was an extraordinary experience. And we, our only plan was to just keep heading west until we got back to Cleveland. That was our home at the time. So we rented our house out, took leaves from our jobs and our senses, and we hitchhiked, took rent-a-cars, planes, boats, trains, and circumnavigated the globe, so to speak, went around the world for just under a year. And we had had a $5,000 budget, and, uh, and this was in the late 70s, so... You know, that money went a little further. But what really transpired during that trip was that we discovered several things. There were a lot of people on the road, and that was a very wonderful experience meeting fellow travelers and like-minded people. But the other thing was we discovered teachers teaching overseas, American teachers and British teachers and Italian teachers teaching in foreign places. And we thought, hmm, there's an opportunity. And so we got back to our home, and I started applying for teaching jobs overseas. Wow. And it took a couple of years because I was very selective. And I ended up at one of the top schools in the world, the Singapore American School. Did you, had you been interested in education before the trip? Oh, I always wanted to be a teacher. I mean, I was teaching in, in Cleveland, you know, so I wanted to be a teacher when I was 12. So teaching was always on the radar. And all of a sudden, teaching overseas, I discovered that teach the that schools will pay for your housing and pay for your airplane tickets. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So we moved to Singapore uh, in the early 80s for a two-year adventure and stayed 16 years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And had our girls there. We we, we brought one daughter there 
at 18 months old uh, and had two more daughters in Singapore. Wow. Were there experiences along the way that really solidified your decision to stay there? Yeah, not necessarily Singapore, but oh yeah, on the road, you know, for anybody that's traveled an extended period of time, uh, so many experiences, deep, deep relationships. You meet people on the road and they're, if it's the right connection, those are lifelong friends. That's one thing we, d- we discovered uh, to this day. I mean, we're talking 40 years later. Uh, we have dear, dear friends that are like family to us that we met on the road. Uh, so that was, that was a big uh, part of it. Also, just being elsewhere. I always, <laughs> I, as much as I had the home in Cleveland and ready to raise the family, the idea of being somewhere else, I almost felt like a pioneer, even though a lot of people were doing it and it wasn't like true pioneers. Uh, it felt really neat to, uh, to be elsewhere. And, uh, and then when we landed in Singapore, it was just the perfect place to raise a family. And it was, a, a, again, a, an amazing school. So it afforded me the opportunity to have my wife stay at home and raise the family and for us to, uh, and, um, to travel, Singapore was a great location. So we could go to Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, India, you know, the Philippines. We, it was just the perfect place to kind of launch our travels. And each trip just whet our appetite for more trips. And back to your question about the trip around the world, we thought that would get it out of our system. You know, we'd get back to Ohio. We would get back to our jobs, you know. And all that did is whet our appetite. Wow. It just got us, it was just like tipping your toe in the water of travel. And even though it was almost a year, you know, and rich experiences all over the world, uh, it just basically got us started in our adventures. Wow. Yeah. And this is Eastern Asia primarily that you're traveling in? I would say the majority of our time, we, well, I can just tell you briefly, we, we started off by taking a car across the country and delivering it to somebody in California. So that was two weeks. We stayed in communes in New Mexico and Arizona. We hiked everywhere. Uh, then we uh, got a, a one-way ticket to Hawaii, and we ended up spending six weeks in Maui and living on living on the beaches for free. And then from there, we uh, island hopped throughout the Marianas Islands. Uh, Guam, Saipan, Tinian, Rota. And then from there, we went to the Philippines and then Singapore and Thailand. And we did skip, we regretfully, we skipped uh, at the time the, the uh, South Asia, uh, like India and Pakistan and, and Central Asia. And we went right from Thailand to Greece. And then we spent the last of the winter and spring in, in Europe. Uh, and sitting in the winter in Greece, having coffee in the Plaka district, you know, non-tourist season. It's pretty cool. Wow. So, but again, the trip really just got us started. And at what point did you start the travel business? That was much, much, much later. So we went to Singapore. We started, I started teaching there. My wife later opened a Montessori school in Singapore. But like I said before, we, our daughters were growing up there. And uh, the Singapore American School, like many good schools, had a very robust travel program for students. And in my third or fourth year as a teacher there, 
I started running their travel program. And as the school grew and as the travel program grew, we called it interim semester. I got a chance to do a lot of reconnaissance work and setting up trips for other teachers. And, and over the years, I think I ran the program for 10 to 12 years. And at the height of the program, we were sending out upper school students, probably 400 students to 12 different countries and all on service work. And, and when you're based in Singapore, you can go to some pretty extraordinary locations, you know, outback Australia, the deserts of India, the mountains of the Himalayas. I took groups as far as Africa, uh, diving in the Maldives. And some of my, my favorites were going into New Guinea, into uh, Irian Jaya, uh, up to the hill tribes. So those are all things that started to expand my horizons. But at a certain point, we'd be bringing students back to Changi Airport in Singapore. And the parents, we'd bring students back and the parents would say, when are you going to take me? And that's, that was oh. the genesis of my business. Wow. So I opened a business in Singapore called Distant Destination. So I was teaching and then running trips, uh, and that mainly in the summer times. Uh, I ran one over the holidays once, but mainly in the summer times. And then I moved back to Boulder, and I continued the business. Uh, so uh, I, would, I, I still had clients in Singapore that I would fly out and meet and take them places, groups of 10 to 20. Um, but then in Singapore, I started giving talks at different schools. I left teaching for a few years. And then after my talks, some of the schools would say, you want to do a trip for us, you know? And so we would fashion some experience uh, for those. And so, for instance, I'll give you one example. Um, I ran, all the trips I did were very, I didn't do anything that you could get out of a brochure. I didn't do anything that required bus travel and museums and cities. I wanted to get off the beaten track, get as isolated as possible, and still have a hygienic bubble that we're living in, but going out into uh, areas that were really untraveled uh, by lots of people. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, I've, and you've heard me tell a couple stories about this. I led several camel safaris in the tar desert in, in western india and in rajasthan and um and that i took students to i mentioned earlier to irian jaya up to the hill tribes in new guinea um climbing kilimanjaro a few times diving in the maldives um but there was one unique trip that i did uh that turned out i did it seven times with over 125 students i think um there was a barge in Thailand that was that was located in Bangkok. I discovered the owners of it. They had it was an old rice barge, and they had converted it into a uh, into a traveling classroom, floating classroom. So the bottom level of the barge was air conditioned, could sleep eighteen people, and just in bunks, all, all open. The middle level was a classroom. The top level was a deck, and. We would stage all the beginning of the trips in, in Bangkok. We would, uh, prior to the trip, I would do my lessons on Buddhism and on Thai history. And then we would cruise up river for two weeks. And we, and we would dock at monasteries going up river all the way to the ancient capital in Ayutthaya. And it became such a popular trip that in Bolt, when I moved back to Boulder with my family, I was taking uh, groups of different high school groups up river. So... I, was I, I left teaching for those years, and I think I 
was in Thailand probably three or four times a year for two to three weeks. We would have monks come on board at night, lead chants in the morning. We we would go into the monasteries and, and you know, 4.30 sunrise chants or six, probably 6.30 there, sunrise chants. And kids would get a real deep experience in a Thai history, culture, and religion. And uh, so that was a very unique trip. And I had an exclusive contract with them so that uh, you know, it was a pretty good gig for quite a while. Uh, so, it, so the formula for these trips was I had to find, I had to have a, a hygienic bubble. So the barge was a hygienic bubble, and other places I can explain. But I also had to have really trusted uh, ground operators. I never, I never um, booked anything through agents in the states other than airplane tickets. So I would work directly with the bus drivers, directly with the the outfitters. So I think I've done nine Himalayan expeditions, but they were always with two different organizations that, you know, Nepali guys, guys in Bhutan that I worked with, Ladakh, India. So I actually worked directly with the guy that owned the camels, you know, in Rajasthan. So I could do affordable trips and really deep dives into culture. How would you get connected to these people? Just through past experiences. I would meet some people and they would being associated with Singapore American school was a, was a, was a big deal for providers in underdeveloped countries. If they, uh, they knew this, they, even they knew the quality of Singapore and then the brand name of Singapore and the Singapore American school and then the travel program. So they really wanted to hitch onto our wagon, you know? And so I got to meet some people that were really shifty and shady and not people I would never do business with. And I also met, and, and to this day have deep relationships with some of the providers uh, in the local countries. Because the way it works, Zach, is there's a certain point in every trip. Let's say you're taking 20 people to, uh, to Kenya or to Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro. That's about $125,000 uh, business. That's that one trip. And at some point, you know, I would say half of that's airfare, but at some point you're sending Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars ahead to a ground operator, and and then when you land at the airport and you've got twenty people with you, you're just hoping that you see your name, you know, at the arrival lounge. Oh my gosh! Because you've sent twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars to these people, so there has to be a deep trust. Yes, and in all the experiences, five hundred students, dozens and dozens and dozens of trips. Nobody cheated me, wow. but it was all about having trusting relationships. Many deals were handshake deals, mm. you know, and, but uh, make no mistake, every single trip, no matter how reliable our provider was, our ground operator was, I still held my breath until I saw my name, yeah. <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, imagine the, the surprise if you're bringing 20 people into Tanzania oh, I, I <laughs> or to Nairobi and all your ground money is supposed to be there and there's nobody there to meet you. <laughs> Disaster. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it kept me awake at night. Would you have contingencies in the event that? I always had a credit card with me. <laughs> yeah. I had a credit card with a $20,000 wow. <laughs> limit on it. Right. And that oh, was, it was like, hey, let's take me to a hotel, find me a bus driver. Yeah, right. <laughs> Figure it out. I mean, I knew the countries very, very well. Right. And I had a lot of friends in each of the countries. So yes, I knew folks. I knew some expats in Nairobi and in, you know, in Delhi and 
you know, in Jakarta and Bangkok that could have given me new contacts, but it would have been an expensive endeavor right, <laughs> to take right. care of 20 people for two or three weeks. Uh, so, but they worked out. It worked out. The other part of the interesting, uh, the other interesting part of the business was you're quoting a quote. So you, you start to put the trip together this a year early, right? Just like you probably did with your, uh, your adventure in, in the canoes. Uh, and then in October, I put, I developed my collateral materials so that I could advertise it to, and it was usually the schools that I was operating with and Singapore was nothing. I mean, as soon as they heard I was going someplace, you know, I would get signed up and in Boulder too. Once I got to the Dawson school, parents waited for me to announce a trip and some trips were family trips and some were student trips. So I didn't need a lot of marketing materials, but I would announce the price and everything in October. And it was always in us dollars. So I had to figure out wherever I was going, the currency exchanges, and I had to kind of put enough cushion in there for currency shifts. And sometimes the currency in some countries would change by 10 or 20% in those eight months before the trip. Because when I arrive there, I'm paying my bills, you know, in, in, uh, in uh, local currency. So... Sometimes, you know, if the currencies go the wrong direction, you lose money on a trip. Mm. And other times uh, where I was in Indonesia one time and they devalued the uh, Indonesian currency by 50% and my money doubled. So I actually came back with extra money. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, so like the hotel we were staying at said, no, you're no longer paying in rupee, <laughs> you know, rupee. You're paying in U.S. dollars. Now. Oh, got it. Just so, to avoid <laughs> Just so they were, they were right. uh, so they didn't get killed. So that was an interesting part of the endeavor too, is just the changes in currencies over nine months. So you had to put build that into the model. So the students had to have, and by the way, it was it was mind body uh, service that was mind body knowledge. We had to do something that was service oriented. We had to do something that was uh, physically oriented. Every trip had a serious physical nature to it. Uh, a lot of high mountain trekking we did or riding camels for two weeks or something like that. And then, and then it had to have knowledge. We learned about the history of the culture. And so everybody came back with, uh, with a, a, you know, real depth of, of uh, experience and knowledge. What do you think the importance of travel is? Oh God, uh, there's an old line. I can't remember even who said it. Uh, I'll take credit for it though. It says travel, uh, you know, Books impart knowledge, travel imparts wisdom. You know, that might be one of them. I don't know. Uh, for me, it's just, I don't know where it came from. I mean, I was a kid that grew up in suburban, you know, Ohio. You know, I, I have no idea. I'm, I'm writing a book called An Ordinary Guy. And the first line in the book is, when I was 18, I didn't even like Chinese food. <laughs> and I, of course, I ended up living among 4 million Chinese for 16 years. Uh, part of it was I, I, I met a woman that had the love, the wondrous lust and my wife, uh, informed me when we were first dating that we were going to be adopting overseas and living overseas and all these wow. other things. So, uh, I think it was a combination of that, but why the travel? I don't know. It's something in my DNA that I can't fully explain. I'm still doing it. I just got back from the Caribbean, you know, uh, so, and and when these kids would go on these trips, would you see a notable change in maybe? Oh, huge! Yeah, uh, 
That's one of the most satisfying things. You know, I'm on Facebook now with probably 75 to 50 to 75 of my ex students from all over the world. And they don't remember the history course I taught them or the government course I taught, but they all remember the trips. They still remind, and some of these kids are in their 40s, you know, and they still remember the trips. Yeah, those are transformative experiences. And, and for my own family too, my own children, they are who they are today uh, in a large part because, you know, I always tell people we raised free range kids. I mean, we took our kids to India when they, and, and, and traveled through India when they were, you know, little, you know, and Indonesia and Malaysia and Thailand when they were little, you know. Do you think it was getting off the beaten trail that really? Well, for me, that was the most pleasure I got. My, I can't say my whole family enjoyed being off the beaten trail. Uh, my wife never liked to trek high, although she's, she's an adventurous traveler, but I don't think she uh, ever wanted to ride a camel for three weeks, you know, or two weeks. I don't think she wanted to, you know, do a couple weeks in the Himalayas, you know. Uh, but uh, she did lead a lot of trips. I mean, when I, with me, I think our best one was, one of our best ones as a team was when I took a group up Kilimanjaro. And I think I took like 14 up and she uh, took the remaining group uh, to Zanzibar, you know. And then we met up back in Nairobi, you know, so the, for the days we were apart. And the Zanzibar group loved Zanzibar and climbers loved climbing, you know. So it was a good team. Did you ever find yourself in a situation that made you really nervous or scared? Always. <laughs> yeah, there's a chapter in my book on near-death experiences. Oh, my gosh. Oh, sure, sure. There were, and some of them were benign events, but they could have been really ugly, you know. And some of them were awful situations, yeah. Uh, yeah, being in jail in Kathmandu and, you know, being, having a gun in the back of my head in northern Thailand and the hill tribes, Yeah. Yeah, there's just a, a bus that almost went over the cliffs in Burma, you know, with 14 kids on board <laughs> and just sliding, sliding, sliding to the edge, <laughs> you know, and stopped. And <laughs> so, oh, sure. But that's two things about that. One is that's when the adrenaline pumps and you know exactly what I'm talking about with your travels. And then it's a great story later. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, if everything goes well and you're staying at a five-star hotel and, you know, and you take a tour of the Louvre, you know, I don't think that's a story, you know. But when a, a acacia tree in Thailand crashes down and crushes your tent at lunchtime and you're not in it and you're saying, and the, uh, our guide says, oh, Mr. Michael, you're going to live a very long life. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the whole tree. It was actually a huge branch of a tree that Whoa. just crushed my tent at lunch. And one branch went through. I always carried a feather pillow with me. That was one of my luxuries. And this one branch went right through the feather pillow and just burst it where my head would have been 12 hours later. And so at the time, it was pretty freaky. You know, I asked the guy, where should I sleep? And he said, let's put, your, let's put a new tent up in that same spot. And I said, why? It's nuts. And he said, no, it's the safest place on earth because <laughs> the event had already happened. Right. So, uh, yeah, that was scary at the time, but it's a great story later, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so, that's, that's, uh, so, yeah, there's many, many times we've been scared. We've been, I mean, anywhere you're traveling and your bus gets stopped and armed people come on board, check paperwork, you're just feeling very vulnerable. 
And that happens a lot, you know, in, in particularly in underdeveloped countries, you know. And, uh, you know, one time in northern uh, Kenya, we were up in the Samburu region, not too far from the, I think, Somali border. But, but we were way up north in, in the Samburu, and we got a flat tire. We were on in, in safari trucks in this small village, and so it took a while to fix the flat tire. And while the flat tire was being fixed, our, our vans got surrounded by people selling trinkets. And they were very aggressive, and they were reaching in the windows and dropping the trinkets on our lap, and they started demanding money. And my driver said, these, are, these people are rascals. These rascals. Are rascals. <laughs> and I said, what does that mean? And he goes, well, look behind. These remain ladies dropping the trinkets. And behind them were guys with guns, you know? And he goes, let's get, this, let's get, the, uh, let's get the tire changed real quickly. And that was probably a, maybe a half-hour incident. And everything ended up fine, but we had to make sure that we got the trinkets back off our laps and back out to the ladies. It was very uncomfortable, you know? And, and we drove away, and that was it. But was that a tense moment? You know, I've got 18, 20 kids with me from Singapore American School, and uh, we got, you know, Somalian traders. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> surrounding the truck, and, the, and my driver's just nervous. He was sweating. And he said, these guys are rascals. Wow. <laughs> so those kinds of things happen actually quite frequently. Uh, uh, if you're doing the kind of travel that we used to do, that I used to do, um, but it worked out. We're sitting together here. <laughs> Talking. What do you think these experiences teach you? Oh, many things. Uh, I, for me, the greatest lesson and what actually helps me in my job here in this office when I've got distressed parents or distressed teachers or students is I've got uh, the plethora of experiences that I've been so fortunate to have. I've got a perspective about life so that when somebody comes in and says, I have a problem, I, I, I can, I can uh, draw from a, a real wealth of other problems that either I've had or that other people have had that I've experienced in my travels that hopefully puts their, um, their problem in perspective. Mm, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So I think I have, and part of it's just age too. I'm, I'm 70 years old, you know, and that helps too. Just pure age helps you to have a perspective. But the experiences on the road, you know, when you're vulnerable and when you're, you know, if you're, honestly, I think I have my highest highs and my lowest lows on the road. And I'm sure you can experience that too. And you're months and months on the river. I'll bet you, you had highs that were just, oh my gosh. you couldn't explain and you had lows. You're going, what the hell am I doing? There are times that I've been up in the Himalayas or on Kelly saying, who did I kill? Why am I killing? Why am I? beating my body like this why am i punishing myself but then i then i then i did it you finish the trek you finish riding the camel you finish you know the mountain climb and then what a perspective builder you know what a self-confidence builder you know my wife always claims that my my climbs and my trips were just all about bragging rights <laughs> perhaps then yeah i think so i think so there's definite truth in that uh, but I think today it's, I have a much better perspective on it. And I think today it's all about just me collecting experiences all my life, you know, so I could tell the stories. And I think this is an interesting segue. Yesterday, um, it was released that in a neighboring city, 
um, Summit in Summit County that we had the first case of the coronavirus. Do you think these past experiences have informed how you're moving forward in in this oh, situation? Yeah, that's a great question, Zach. Yesterday was a <laughs> a really uh, long, long day. Um, so yes, back to perspective. You know, when you start looking at something where everybody is freaking out, and and perhaps for good reason, uh, and then you're running an organization with 430 kids who are the the apple of their parents' eyes and their number one most important thing in their lives, and you're making decisions that affect a thousand people every day. When a coronavirus thing hits, and then we get rumors of other coronaviruses in our, in, even in close to town here, which we weren't sure if they were rumors or fact or not fact. And to really make it an interesting afternoon, evening, we're the next day, today, we're hosting 400 people in a basketball tournament in a closed space, you know, in the state uh, regional tournament. And so we had really tough decisions to make in a very short period of time. The running the travel business, also owning the Montessori school and having all this life experiences that I've been so fortunate to have informed a lot of how I handled things yesterday. And uh, not saying every decision we made was perfect, uh, but it was, they were thoughtful. I also have an amazing team around me. Uh, one of the secrets to my success is hiring people very thoughtful, very uh, smarter than me, and then letting, get, do, letting them do their jobs. And uh, yesterday was a good example of that. But as a leader, nobody wants to see leaders head on fire, you know, hair on fire. So we had to keep, I had to be calm. We had to be measured. And there were parents calling us, demanding information. Rumors were flying, and we had to st- Again, we had our team had to stay centered and mindful and had to act deliberately but carefully. And were you feeling internally different than what you were projecting outwards? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, I really think one of the one of the many but one of the most important qualities of leadership is when everything around you is in chaos. Everybody is looking to a stable, thoughtful, ethical leader. And that's where my life experiences, my gray hair, my <laughs> everything in between helps. Um, uh, nobody, again, nobody wants to see their, the leader with their hair on fire. So yeah, I, inside, do I, did I sleep well last night? No. You know, it was I a little worried about some of the negative fallout on some major decisions we made yesterday? Of course. At the end of the day, I had again good people around me, and uh, for the most part, the the response has been pretty positive today. But as we're sitting here talking now, and I'm this calm, reflective person, uh, we're waiting for the next shoe to drop, you know, right here in this town, with regards to uh, possible more coronavirus infections, and what's the school going to do, and what do the parents want us to do, and. There's a, there's a lot at stake. So what is the philosophy moving forward in dealing with a rapidly evolving situation like this? That's a great question, Zach. And, I, and again, we're defining this as, as we're going right now. I mean, the, if you look at what's going on worldwide, just look at the economies just for a second. The supply chains all over the world have been severed. 
the travel business right now is completely crushed. Uh, I have friends that own two very large travel companies in Boulder, and they're they're basically virtually shutting down temporarily because all trips are being canceled. Schools, Seattle's a school district in Seattle just closed for two weeks, and they're on virtual learning. So the 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 amount of moving the, the number of moving parts and everything. So to get back to our philosophy or our direction, this is literally minute to minute right now. And this is where I think a really sound mind, a person who's well-versed in Daniel Goleman's work around emotional intelligence and um, has to be at the helm. So, and then you have to trust the people around you. So right now we're trying to be proactive. Right now we're trying to stay ahead of each story, but the stories are happening so fast, Zach, that, that you know, sometimes we're reacting. I hate to be in a reactive mode, but sometimes we have to. Here's a really simple um, sim- uh, simile or, or, excuse me, metaphor for how I, how I think in a crisis situation. And I, and I think I may have borrowed this idea. It's been a long time. Um, Viktor Frankl wrote a book quite a while ago called The uh, Man's Search for Meaning. I've read it probably five times. And I think in there he talks about uh, stimulus and response. If not, somebody else did, but I'll take credit for it right now. But when a stimulus hits your, your being, the, I think a good leader or a wise person tries to have a space between when the stimulus hits and the response goes out. And I, and I know that sounds oversimplified, but the better the space and the... The, uh, the more thoughtful that process in between, the response then is going to be, in my opinion, wiser, kinder, gentler, you know, smarter, um, if you can have a space between the stimulus and response. So I thought about that a lot yesterday when people were calling me and where everybody was coming up going, what are you doing? What are you doing? I, I, I tried to stay in that space as much as possible. Does that make sense? Is it sort of pausing, stepping back from the situation, gathering your yeah. thoughts? Sometimes it's a time space. Yeah. And sometimes, I don't, yes, but it's definitely a pause. It's definitely a, a time. It's a, it's a moment of reflection. Um, and sometimes, hopefully, it's, you have the time to, to get to have that space. So many of us just react, you know, based upon gut or intuition, which sometimes is, is valuable. I mean, I teach an ethics course to ninth graders. And one of the things I say to them is, before you walk into that high school party, and most of you will <laughs> be walking into a high school party, try to think about the, the things that you, the decisions you're going to make in advance so that when you get offered that beer or that joint or that drug or whatever it is, uh, you'll have the time that space, the thoughtfulness between that initial stimulus and how you respond. That's just one of, the, one of my takeaways. I hope they take away in an ethics class. And so many times in life, you can think about it. I, um, I was a late bloomer in terms of uh, uh, thoughtful decisions. And so there were many times in life that I made decisions that I, just on a whim, you know. Most, some of them served me well, some of them didn't. Uh, uh, that's one of the one of the um, 
takeaways that I hope my students get. So anyway, back to leadership, that's an essential element of how we move forward, whether it's uh, dealing with the coronavirus or whether we're dealing with, you know, whatever other thing hits the school right now. I mean, right now in the school's life, right this moment, we're re-enrolling students at a time when the stock market has dropped 14%, at a time when the uncertainty around the coronavirus is rearing its ugly head worldwide. And we've got a thousand people as associated with this school that, that depend on us. It's an interesting time right now and, and a little disconcerting. Some nights I sleep better than others. <laughs> you know, last night was not one of them because there's just a lot going on. You know, Mike, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned a name that I wasn't familiar with. I think it was Daniel Gold, Goldman. Goldman re- wrote a book up in the 90s. He was the, he, he, I think Goldman was the one that coined the, uh, the title uh, or the phrase uh, emotional intelligence rather than um, IQ versus EQ. And, and, uh, and he, he framed it in a way that talked about leadership and emotional intelligence. They call these the soft skills. Nothing is further than the truth. Emotional intelligence, in, to me, are the hard skills. You know, and, and again, I summed it up in that space between stimulus and response, but it's much, much more uh, uh, nuanced and uh, detailed. But it really has to do with uh, um, being a thoughtful, ethical um, leader who listens, who uh, guides. Like earlier in a, a conversation before we got on, on the podcast, you mentioned how much you enjoy working for me. And I don't, I can't even phrase it that way. I don't actually think anybody works for me. You know, think of that, what that says. They're working, you know, for me with, I mean, you know, it does, it just sounds wrong to me. Everybody that I work works with me. Yes, I'm in a different supervisory capacity, but we work for the school and we work for our students, but nobody's working for me. I think that's a, and Goldman never talked about that, but that's an example of Goldman's thinking in my mind. Separating ego from, you know, uh, decision-making, those kinds of things. How, how do you know when you're doing a good job or when you're doing, when you're leading the right way? Oh, if I, if I, if I'm not attached to my North star, you know, if I'm not, I feel it immediately. If I'm being pulled in a direction, uh, by whatever, whatever the, uh, constituency is, my gut can tell me very quickly that this is not who I am. This is not what's right. And by the way, I haven't listened to my gut at times and I've made decisions that I would love to take back. Uh, but I generally know sometimes right when it's happening. And so I can usually stop and get that space before I respond. But, um, the, you know, in leadership, and, and no matter what role you're in, no matter what institution you're in in leadership, you, a person is frequently pulled and tugged in different directions. And I'll just give you one example. As the head of school, uh, one of my main jobs, among many, is to raise money for the endowment or raise money for our annual fund. 
So I, when I got here, took myself out. It took the headmaster should not be involved in admissions because that's an automatic conflict of interest. If I find out that there's a very wealthy family that wants to get in and the kids might not be as mission appropriate as a middle-class family or as a financial aid family, it would be, it would be unethical for me to push for the wealthy family. So that's why I stay out of admissions decisions. There are times, however, when I realize that a wealthy family could donate enough money to bring in five financial aid kids, right? And more diversity. So sometimes I get caught in those gray areas and that's when I have to start looking at my gut or listening to my gut. There are times in which we're asked to make compromises. There are times in which we're asked to, you know, I'm asked to, you know, make a special, you know, exception for somebody. And sometimes it's the right thing to do. And sometimes it's the wrong thing to do. So back to your original question, Zach, uh, it's usually, I can usually feel it when it's not going right. And I can, and, and I think part of that comes with age and experience. I don't think I honestly don't think I would have been an effective leader in my thirties or forties. And I know a lot of great heads of school, women and men who are in their thirties and forties that are killing it. I would not have been one of those people. I was lucky to come to this, uh, to this role um, later in life. And I was more suited for, I'm more suited for it now. Are there any people that you look up to? Oh, I've had mentors all my life. Well, I mean, the, the, the most transformative person for me was when I was a young teacher in Singapore, late 20s, early 30s, was uh, our, we called him superintendent there, but our headmaster, uh, Dr. Mel Kubander. He was not afraid to, to call me out. I was very brash, uh, very sure of myself, uh, not as tactful as I am today, not as discreet. And uh, he not only recognized my talents as a teacher and rewarded them and guided me, but he also was not afraid to call out my egotism, my, my uh, uh, indiscretions at times. Uh, and to this day, I say to myself, what would Mel do if I'm in a situation? And this, that's 30 years ago, you know, if I'm in a situation where I, I'm in a dilemma, you know, and in leadership, as in life, we face dilemmas where we have two decisions and they're either both wrong, but you have no choice, or you've got two decisions and they're both right. You know, I mean, you have no choice to get out of the wrong, wrong but sometimes you're faced with uh, right versus right. Like I've referred to with the wealthy family, you know, one right decision is to deny that family because the kid's not mission appropriate and bring a financial aid kid in. And the other is to look at the possibility of what that person could do to transform the school. So frequently we're faced with dilemmas, you know, right versus right. And sometimes I'm in a situation where this, where it's a lose-lose situation, but I got to make a choice, you know, <laughs> it's an interesting, but we all have those dilemmas in life. Just some are have higher stakes than others, depending upon the role you play, you know? So Mike, if you could say anything to your 20 year old self, <laughs> what would you say? I'm following a, a little thing right now that I overheard from somebody uh, it's an acronym, but it's the word WAIT, W-A-I-T. 
and it's it means why am I talking? It's a question I ask myself. So I'll be sitting in a meeting and I'll be blabbing, and I'll say wait, and I'll say why am I talking, and then I'll shut up and let people talk around me and try to work on my listening skills. So if I'm talking to my 20 year old self, I would say first shut up <laughs> and start asking yourself why are you talking. Uh, and I referred to my 20-year-old self was very sure of myself. You know, I was right a real lot, Zach. <laughs> Even when I was wrong, I was right. And you can ask my wife. Uh, so I, the best advice I would get is to shut up and listen more. You know, I, I'm still working on that too. <laughs> Even, so, you know, in my, you know, my 70s, I'm still working on it. But uh, I'm better at it now than I was in my 20s. Mike, thank you so much for sitting down with me and, and giving me the opportunity to talk to you about all these experiences. I, uh, I really think there's a lot to be learned from your journey. Well, thank you. Thank you. Zach, I want to just compliment you on your interview style. You have a way of being an amazing listener and getting a lot out of a person. So, good job.